We've got a returning caller from Chicago. It's good to hear from you again. I've called before. Uh, yeah, you don't remember? Memory's a funny thing. The mind can play tricks on itself. How so? A man can wake up with a stranger's blood on his hands and not remember having done a thing. Come on, who could forget committing murder? This is part two of Richard Speck, The Summer of Slaughter. Warning. What you're about to hear is true. This call will delve deep into actual crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not suitable for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing and offensive. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Today on Hook Switch Hotline. The police talked down the distraught Corazon Amaral and took her to South Chicago Community Hospital where she was sedated. She was able to give police an account of the previous night, and by 8.30 in the morning, police had a detailed description ready. There was no shortage of clues for the teams of forensic experts to find in the house on East Street. Unidentified fingerprints and palm prints were lifted from the doors, walls, and furniture, and a man's t-shirt, soaked in sweat, was found in the living room. Another was found wrapped in Gloria Davies' jeans. The police quickly discovered that a man answering to Miss Amaral's description had left his bags at a petrol station just across the road from 2319 East Street on Tuesday night. He had told the attendant that he was looking for a job on a ship. The branch office of the National Maritime Union was only a few yards away at 2335 East 100th Street. There, police learned that someone had stopped by in the previous few days looking for a ship that was due to travel to New Orleans. In a waste paper basket, police found a crumpled application with the name Richard Franklin Speck at the top. At 11 a.m., Speck woke up in his room at the shipyard inn. He was still wearing the dark shirt and pants that he had on the night before. When he splashed himself with cold water to wake himself up, he noticed that his right hand was covered in blood, although his clothes were clean. He couldn't remember how the blood got there. He couldn't remember anything after shooting up dope with those sailors. He assumed he'd cut himself, but one other thing bothered him. He had a gun, but no idea why or where he'd gotten it from. He shrugged his shoulders. A drinker's life was full of little mysteries like that. He decided to go downstairs to buy a bottle of cheap wine. The bar radio had details of the murders playing. Speck jerked a thumb at the bartender and said, I hope they catch the son of a bitch. The U.S. Coast Guard Service had a record of Speck. They sent a photo of him to the hospital, where it was mixed with a hundred or so other convicted rapists. Corazon Amarao had lapsed into a state of shock, and her doctors were concerned and adamant. They refused to allow police to question her or to show her any of the mugshots. The police set a trap for Speck. They asked the NMU to offer him a job on a non-existent trip to New Orleans. At 3.10 that afternoon, Speck phoned the NMU and was told a job was waiting for him. He said he would be there, but he never turned up. The call was traced back to the shipyard inn, about a mile away. When the police got there, they were told that Speck had left a few minutes after making that call. Speck spent the day bar hopping with his friend Robert Red Gerald. In one place, the ebb tide, Gerald remembered later, someone had mentioned the case, and Speck had commented, whoever did it must have been a sex maniac. Later in the evening, they split up. Speck said he was going to check out some action on the north side. In fact, he was worried about the local police activity. All police leave had been canceled in the wake of the killings. Speck had outstanding arrest warrants from Dallas. 
and didn't want to be pulled in on suspicion of anything. So he took a cab to get out of the area, get out of harm's way. He hustled some more cash playing pool, then picked up a prostitute and found a room. On Friday, the 15th of July at 8.15 a.m., the manager of a cheap Northside hotel called the local police. A prostitute had told him that the man she had been there with had a gun. The police arrived to find the man still in bed. He told them he was Richard Speck and gave them Martha Thornton's address. He insisted that the gun belonged to the prostitute. The police confiscated the gun and they left it at that. It's important to remember that at that time, Richard Speck's name had not been passed on to them as a suspect in the murder of the nurses. When the patrolman's report had been read, the police came rushing back only to find out that their suspect had checked out 15 minutes before. By that time, Corazon Amarao had recovered sufficiently to identify Speck from his photograph. When the police checked with the FBI files in Washington, they found that Speck had a long criminal record in Texas. By 7.30 p.m., a full description of Speck, including the tattoos that covered his arms, was in the hands of the Chicago police, as well as his fingerprint card. The experts at Chicago's crime lab worked through the night. By 4.30 a.m. on the 16th of July, they were certain that they had a match for the three prints that they had lifted. So sure were they of this, that at 2.40 that afternoon, Superintendent Orlando Wilson formally announced that, quote, the killer of eight nurses from the Chicago Community Hospital, Thursday, July 14, 1966, has been named Richard Franklin Speck, white male, 24, a seaman. Latent fingerprints taken at the scene of the mass killings identified Speck as the killer. End quote. This statement brought a great deal of public criticism, as it couldn't help but prejudice any future trial. But the police thought it justified as long as it led to a quick arrest. The case had seized the public imagination in a grip of terror, and they had to solve it quickly. Richard Speck's victims included Gloria Davy, age 22, from Dyer, Indiana, where her father worked in a steel mill. Marianne Jordan, age 20, lived at her parents' home with her five brothers and sisters. Suzanne Ferris, age 21, was engaged to Marianne Jordan's brother. Valentina Passion, age 23, of Jones City, Philippines, was a devout Catholic. Patricia Matuzic, age 20, the daughter of a liquor salesman. Merlita Gargulo, age 22, from Santa Cruz, Philippines, had been in Chicago only a month. Pamela Wilkening, 20, from Lansing, Illinois, had always wanted to be a nurse. Nina Schmale, 24, was a one-time Sunday school teacher from Wheaton, Illinois. Speck was sitting in a bar when he heard his name come over the radio. He was stunned. He had not recognized himself in the widely circulated portrait drawn by police artist Otis Rathel. The face was too soft and without the characteristic pockmarks that marked Speck's face. Speck, being fatalistic by nature, never considered that the police had made a mistake in naming him, but he realized he had nowhere to go. Blood flowed in a steady stream from his left arm and right wrist. He had hacked them open with a broken wine bottle. Weakly bleeding out, he called to anyone who might hear, come and see me, you got to come and see me. I'd done something bad. The man in the next room, a drifter named George Gagorich, didn't care. Leave me alone. 
he shouted back to Speck. You're a hillbilly. You just want to get at me. I don't trust no hillbilly. Speck kept on shouting, and George the neighbor kept on ignoring him. Even when he staggered to his feet, got up, and started pounding and kicking at the neighbor's door. Someone saw him standing there, bleeding, and notified the front desk clerk. The police who showed up didn't recognize Speck. His room was registered to a B. Brian, and this was the name that the police gave when they left him at Cook County Hospital. Attempted suicides were an everyday event at Skid Row flop houses, like the Star Hotel. At 12.30 a.m., a duty doctor at the casualty unit, Leroy Smith, came to examine Speck. He thought his face was familiar, and beneath the blood on his left arm, he saw the outlines of a tattoo. He wiped some of the blood away and saw the word born. Bending over his patient, Dr. Smith asked his name. Richard, came the whispered reply. Richard Speck. Dr. Smith sent for the police before stitching up Richard Speck and giving him some blood. The police were already waiting when Speck got out of surgery. Speck was immediately clamped to his bed with leg irons and then taken to an ambulance to Bridewell Prison Hospital. The hunt for the spree killer who killed the nurses was over. The police got nowhere when they questioned Speck. He had a standard answer for all of their questions. I don't know anything more about it than you do, he said. He wasn't denying his involvement. He simply couldn't remember anything between being with those sailors in the early evening of July 13th and coming back to his hotel room the next day. But it didn't matter. The police had more than enough evidence. Cortazan Amaral had been brought to the hospital in her nurse's uniform on Tuesday, the 19th of July, and identified the prisoner as her attacker, Richard Speck. Speck's first public appearance came with his arraignment on August the 1st. Security was tight. Feelings were running so high that officials were worried that someone would attempt to kill Speck. A small army of police and bailiffs surrounded the court, and both the room and the reporters attending were searched for weapons and explosives. Speck looked pale and haggard. He hadn't fully recovered from his suicide attempt, which had brought on inflammation of the heart. He was also undergoing withdrawal from alcohol and barbiturates. As Speck had no money, the court appointed public defender Gerald Getty to defend him. Getty entered a formal plea of not guilty. Jail psychiatrist Marvin Zaporin was assigned to Speck to check on any further suicidal intentions. Zaporin found him to be depressed and resigned to his fate. When asked if he had killed the nurses, Speck replied, Everybody says I did it, must be so. If they say I did it, I did it. Even the prospect of the electric chair held no terrors for him. If I burn, I burn, Speck said. Speck's catalog of head injuries began when he was only five. He hit himself with a claw hammer while playing in a sandbox. When he was 10, he fell headlong from a tree and was unconscious for 90 minutes. At 11, he ran headfirst into a steel rod supporting a shop awning. At 14, he took another tumble from a tree and had a bicycle accident. Both rendered him unconscious. To this could be added wounds he had received in innumerable fights. His headaches began a year after he was clubbed by a Dallas policeman, and he was hit six or seven times over the skull with a tire iron in a bungled robbery attempt. Not all the damage was due to injury. He had pneumonia, blocking blood supplies to the brain when he was three months old. He had sunstroke after picking cotton at a Texas prison farm, and of course, he was a hardened alcoholic. Once his health had recovered, Speck was transferred to a three-cell maximum security block. Zipporin gradually made headway with his patient. 
whom he felt was suffering from brain damage. His memory was very poor, and he had sustained several serious head injuries in his life. For many years, he had suffered from pounding headaches associated with a white haze before his eyes, as if he'd been staring at the sun. The court appointed a panel of eight independent psychiatrists to examine Speck's mental competence. Speck didn't seem to care what they thought. When the exasperated Zipporin asked him why he had not told him about his head injuries or intravenous drug use, Speck's standard reply was, they didn't ask me. The panel reported that Speck was fit to stand trial. Zipporin agreed with this, but felt that Speck was indeed insane at the time of the crime. He just needed alcohol or other drugs to bring his psychosis to the bloody surface. Speck continued to resist efforts to save him when it was suggested he may have dated one of the girls, which would have explained his fingerprints being in the house. He categorically denied it. Due to the pretrial publicity, the trial location was switched to a smaller town, Peoria, almost 150 miles to the southwest. Speck was not pleased at the change of venue. He didn't want to move out of his cell he had made cozy in maximum security. At Zipporin's prompting, he had taken up painting. For the first time in his life, he had found something he could do reasonably well. Defense attorney Getty argued no less than 35 pretrial motions, the majority of them to exclude some of the prosecution's evidence. He argued that the gun taken from Speck by the Northside police was inadmissible evidence, as was the pocket knife found in the Calumet River. It was also decided by the court that all eight counts of murder would have been tried together, despite the prosecution's wishes. At midnight on the 14th of February, Speck was transferred to Peoria in a convoy of three unmarked cars filled with armed deputies. He was allowed to take his paints, a radio that Zipporin had given him, and a blue bespoke suit to wear at his trial. The trial opened on the 20th of February with the first day of jury selection. Speck spent the day as he would spend every other day of the trial. He sat at the defense table looking numbly and blindly ahead, nervously chewing gum. As the days went on, he would relax a little but would never look at the jury. Both defense attorney Getty and the 30-year-old assistant state's attorney, William Martin, who led the prosecution, were very careful in their selection of jurors. Each candidate was questioned thoroughly. Getty was keen to root out any preconceived notions about Speck's guilt, while Martin wanted to ensure that no one on the jury would shrink from the recommendation of the electric chair. Under Illinois law, no one could be sentenced to death without such a recommendation from the jury itself. Jury selection went on until the end of March. 610 people were questioned before 12 of them, seven men and five women, were impaneled and the proper jury trial could begin. Martin's case was simple enough to state. He had an eyewitness and he had fingerprints. Speck was the killer and he deserved to die. Getty's job was a lot more difficult. He had already rejected the idea of an insanity defense as Speck had not admitted to the killings. Besides, Getty knew that no jury had ever freed a masked murderer to an asylum. Martin established the circumstantial evidence first. Two sailors testified to Speck's having been in the neighborhood of the death house, and the owner of the gas station remembered that he'd left his bag there. Customers at the shipyard inn said they'd seen Speck with a gun and a knife two hours before the killings. On the third day, Martin called his star witness, Corazon Amarao. He asked her if she could point out the man she'd seen at the house. In a dramatic moment, without a word, she stepped down out of the witness box, walked across the courtroom floor to the defense table, and raised her right hand until it was a few inches away from Richard Speck's cheek. This is the man, she said in a steady voice. Speck flicked a glance at her and then retreated into vacancy. Martin then took her through the sequence of events as she had witnessed them. That would take her around three hours, and she broke down several times. As she spoke, Martin dramatized her testimony, 
using a 3D $5,000 model of 2319 East 100th Street. In dramatic fashion, every time Miss Amarao told of a girl being taken out of the bedroom, Martin removed a wooden figure from the south bedroom and placed it where the body had been found. The effect of her evidence on Speck's chances were, Getty admitted later, devastating. He cross-examined her very gently trying to throw doubt on her identification of Speck. In direct examination, she had said that the man who had come into her room had, quote, marks on his face, end quote. Getty pointed out that when she had first described the intruder to the police, she'd noted that he had a crew cut and made no reference to any marks on his face, no acne scar reference. Otis Rathel, the police artist who first produced the drawing based on what Miss Amaral said she had seen, had also drawn the suspect with short hair and smooth skin. But Speck wore his longish hair, swept back, and his face was noticeably acne-scarred. Miss Amarao insisted that she had told police about the pockmarked face and had never mentioned anything about a crew cut. The inference was that the police had been mistaken. Given that she was in shock at the time and had only a fractured command of the English language, it was plausible that such a misunderstanding had arisen. But Getty had to contend himself with small victories, with introducing confusion over details of the evidence, because not once did Miss Amarao waver on her identification. The medical examiner who had performed the autopsies detailed the women's injuries. Photographs of the dead women were passed around the jury over Getty's strenuous objections. Fingerprint experts testified that three latent prints on the door of the main bedroom matched Richard Speck's right index, right middle, and left middle fingers. The defense case was a short one. Speck was not called to the stand. Getty didn't think there was much point, and Speck would not have done it anyway. He had a phobia about talking in front of strangers or being the center of attention. His mother, brother, and five sisters all spoke as character witnesses for Speck, simply to give the monster presented by the prosecution a human face. The main plank of Speck's defense was an alibi. Speck, of course, had no idea where he'd been, but two witnesses had come forward. Merle Farmer was the bartender at Kay's Pilot House on Chicago's South Side. His wife, Gardena, worked there as a short order cook. Both recalled that Speck had come into the bar at 11.30 on the 13th of July and left about an hour later, by which time, according to Cortezon Amarao, he had already started killing. They remembered that he had been dressed in a short-sleeved black shirt, which showed his tattoos. He had drunk bourbon and cola and had a hamburger around midnight. They were specific about the time, because a crowd of night shift workers always turned up at midnight. Martin suggested in cross-examination that they were mistaken about the time, but both remained impressively certain. Getty rested his case on Thursday, the 13th of April. The evidence of the farmers was not enough to overcome the vivid impression given by Corazon Amarao's identification. It took the jury 49 minutes to find Speck guilty and recommend the death sentence. The next step was a mitigation hearing, where Getty produced his psychiatric evidence. All of this failed to sway Judge Passion, because on the 6th of June, 1967, he fixed an execution date for September. Getty, who had never lost a prisoner to the electric chair, immediately filed appeals that would delay an execution. However, it was not his lawyer's skill that eventually saved Richard Speck's life. Later that year, the United States Supreme Court declared a moratorium on executions, which lasted until 1976. On the 22nd of November, 1972, Speck was formally resentenced to eight consecutive terms of between 50 and 150 years of imprisonment. The total sentence of 400 years to 1,200 years was the longest ever given 
in the United States at that time. While incarcerated at the Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois, Speck was given the nickname Birdman after the film Birdman of Alcatraz because he kept a pair of sparrows that had flown into his cell. Speck was described as a loner who kept a stamp collection and enjoyed listening to music in private. His contacts with the warden included requests for new shirts, a radio, and other mundane items. The warden described him as, quote, a big nothing doing time, end quote. But Speck was not a model prisoner. He was often caught with drugs or distilled moonshine. Punishment for such infractions never stopped him. Quote, how am I going to get in trouble? I'm here for 1,200 years, end quote. Speck loathed reporters and granted only one press interview in 1978 to Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green. During that interview, he publicly confessed to the murders for the first time and said that he thought he would get out of prison, quote, between now and the year 2000, end quote, at which time he hoped to run his own grocery store business. When Green asked him if he compared himself to celebrity killers like John Dillinger, he replied, quote, me, I'm not like Dillinger or anybody else. I'm freakish, end quote. Speck stated that at the time of the killings, he had, quote, no feelings, end quote, but that by now things had changed. Quote, I had no feelings at all that night. They said there was blood all over the place. I can't remember. It felt like nothing. I'm sorry as hell for those girls and for their families and for me. If I had it to do all over again, it would be a simple house burglary. Speck's final thought for the American people was, quote, just tell them to keep up their hatred for me. I know it keeps up their morale and I don't know what I'd do without it, end quote. In his book, Mind Hunter, inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit, author John E. Douglas of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit refers to a telling prison incident Speck revealed to him in an interview. Quote, he found an injured sparrow that had flown in through one of the broken windows and he nursed it back to health. When it was healthy enough to stand, he tied a string around its leg and had it perch on his shoulder. At one point, a guard told him pets weren't allowed. Quote, I can't have it, Speck challenged, then walked over to a spinning fan and threw the small bird in. Horrified, the guard said, I thought you liked that bird. Speck said, I did, but if I can't have it, no one can. Speck had reason to fear he would not survive long enough to be executed by the state. Men who rape and murder women were despised and targeted by other prisoners. Sure enough, the four other death row inmates terrorized Speck, threatening to kill him. Speck had to be placed in solitary confinement for his own safety. Speck delayed his execution by filing numerous appeals. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court abolished capital punishment and Speck's death sentence was changed to 50 to 100 years in prison. While in prison, Speck wore silky women's underwear consumed hormones to make his body more feminine, and adapted effeminate mannerisms. The inmates did not kill Speck because they preferred to use him sexually. Officials believe that the prisoners prostituted him out. Speck's one true confidant was his psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is convinced that Speck sought to punish himself by emulating a woman's physique and spending the rest of his life being sexually used by men. In May 1996, Chicago television news anchor Bill Curtis received videotapes made at Stateville Correctional Center in 1988 from an anonymous attorney. Showing them publicly for the first time before the Illinois State Legislature, Curtis pointed out the explicit scenes of sex, drug use, and money being passed around by prisoners who seemingly had no fear of being caught. In the center was Richard Speck performing oral sex on another inmate, 
sharing a large quantity of cocaine with another inmate, parading in silk panties, sporting female-like breasts, allegedly grown using smuggled hormone treatments, and boasting, quote, if they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose, end quote. The Illinois legislature packed the auditorium to view the two-hour video, but stopped the screening when the tape showed Speck performing oral sex on another man. From behind the camera, a prisoner asked Speck if he had killed those nurses. Speck responded, quote, sure I did. When asked why, Speck shrugged and jokingly said, it just wasn't their night. Asked how he felt about himself in the years since, he said, like I always felt, had no feeling. If you're asking me if I felt sorry, no. He also described in detail the experiences of strangling someone. Quote, it's not like TV. It takes over three minutes, and you have to have a lot of strength. End quote. Shortly before December 5th, 1991, Speck was transported from Stateville Correctional Center to Silver Cross Hospital in Joliet, Illinois, after complaining of severe chest pains. Speck died in the early morning hours of December 5th of what was believed to have been a heart attack, one day shy of what would have been his 50th birthday. The coroner stated that Speck had an enlarged heart, emphysema, and clogged arteries, which most likely contributed to his fatal heart attack. Speck's sister feared that his grave would be desecrated, so he does not have an identified physical resting place. Speck was cremated, and his ashes were scattered in a secret location in the Joliet area. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hookswitch Hotline. Visit hookswitchhotline.com now for detailed imagery of the crime scene. And join us here next week. With every crime, someone somewhere has more information. That someone could be you. Call Hookswitch Hotline with your comment or contribution on an upcoming episode at 415-448-7263.